been an exciting 37 days, as Jim uh, said before. Uh, I'm going to walk through a couple of data points, uh, much of which uh, we've collected since the election, uh, trying to figure out where we're headed from here. Um, but I'm happy, you know, to throw it open to questions about the election itself. This is going to be a, an election that's chewed over um, for years to come. We, what we've joked in my office where there's a lot of, uh, a lot of academics, um, this is going to be the uh, source for PhD dissertations for decades to come, uh, the Trump victory and, and how, how that actually occurred. So I'm hoping we can see this screen. Is this visible to everybody? It's not. It's warming up. It's warming up. Okay. So, um, since, since we're talking here, I, I'm also happy to talk after this you know, brief, brief presentation to get this started about you know, where we stand as a polling industry and, and some of the questions you may have about uh, the election outcome and what happened and why um, some of the polls uh, may have failed. But I'm happy to talk about all that. Let's start. Why don't we go ahead and start? Go ahead and... Uh, so we, we always test, uh, you know, evaluations of the president-elect and their cabinet choices and way, the way they're explaining their plans and policies. You know, given Trump's, uh, you know, almost historic unpopularity during the campaign, I don't think it's very surprising here. You see him uh, as, as being uh, less less positive views of both his, the way he's explaining his uh, politics and plans and, and his cabinet choices, certainly compared to all recent pres presidents. And, and let's look, but, but what's interesting here is the partisanship that we see now in America. It long predates this election, but we've seen it really explode in this election campaign. You see to the right there, 79% of Republicans. In effect, his support for his transition is as high as for Bush in 2001 or for Bush Sr. in 1989. No difference there. Where you see it, of course, is in the out party, the Democrats. And the same pattern here, this is the cabinet choices. This was done a little bit before the Secretary of State and some of the other recent picks, but yeah, doubtful this would change. Again, strong Republican support, strong base support for, for Trump throughout the transition. Uh, Democrats just at historic lows uh, for, for support. So where, what are Trump's strengths? Well, I mean, what's interesting here, we asked the question about confidence and his abilities to, in various realms, work effectively with Congress. Maybe a little bit surprising. 60% of, uh, of all Americans said that they were at least somewhat confident in Trump in that realm. Where you see him, you know, not so confident there is handling international crises, obviously untested there, using military force wisely and preventing major scandals in his administration. <laughs> These are the views of Trump, again, after the election. You know, strong leader, that's the one. Uh, that, that was certainly an asset during, during his campaign. Otherwise, the personal characteristics, as we saw throughout the campaign, just historic negatives there. I mean, hard to like 
<coughs> reckless. And these numbers, th these last few negatives there, haven't changed even with his election. So you see still highly negative views of Trump on a personal level. But what's interesting here is that you saw this Republic, high level of Republican pr approval for Trump, you know, for his plans and policies for the transition. <coughs> Even though there are doubts about him personally among many Republicans, 49% of Republicans say he's hard to like. This is not somebody who they has, has a, they have highly favorable views of on a personal level, they have doubts about. Good role model, 52%. But they, the qualifications have come around, at least from a Republican perspective, and then you see strong leader and patriotic as being clear assets for Trump uh, among the Republican base. Interesting, you know, the Democrats almost uniformly negative except for patriotic. You do see some, some signal there. So, you know, there's concern, obviously, again, on partisan lines about uh, potential for conflicts of interest in a Trump administration. These numbers really didn't change a lot from the campaign, so it's hard to know. It, it doesn't appear as if these concerns are growing. Um, very partisan, as you'll see in most of the attitudes in, in, that we found. And uh, this is just an interesting question. It's a in effect, it's a tweeting question. Uh, other 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 pollsters have asked, should should Trump tweet once he's in the White House? We we felt like it was a broader issue than that. So the question was, when it comes to the kinds of things he says generally. You know, will he need to change? Will he need to become more cautious once in the White House? And universally, you know, this is something that Republicans and Democrats can agree on. 76% of Republicans, yes, need to be more cautious once you take office. Um, you know, whether whether that whether the signal is received or not is another story, of course. Okay, so let's just look at some key issues uh, quickly. Uh, immigrants. You know, again, we've we found positive views of immigrants generally, uh, strong support for a path to legal status all throughout the campaign, very little support for building a wall and deportation. This is the highest percentage we found saying that immigrants, these are immigrants generally, not undocumented or no mention of that. Uh, strengthen the country because of hard works and talent. And you, know, and you see even 39% of Republicans, 82% of Democrats agree on that. Uh, even division, this is, you know, if we ask the basic question about the health care law, you get almost a 50-50 split on it. 50-50 split, basically about what to do about it. Democrats want to expand it. Uh, obviously unlikely in the current environment. Uh, and Republicans, you see the strong Republican support for repealing. Uh, the Medicare uh, plans that have been sort of picking around haven't resonated yet at all. Uh, you know, we see 49% saying they've heard nothing at all about this. This essentially, this question is essentially attempting to capture the Ryan plan, at least as it stood a couple of years ago. We asked a similar question in 2012. So that has not resonated, but if you go to the next slide, I don't know whether you can read this or not, it's very small print. We asked a question in 2015 about, does the government provide too much, too much help or not enough help for key groups in society? And what you see here is that these white non-college Republicans, which of course were a key group and a key, key factor for Trump during his campaign and in his victory, 
70% of white non-college Republicans <coughs> told us at this time about a year ago uh, that the government does not do enough for older people. Now that's, that's a little bit of a warning sign on this Medicare plan if it's seen as, as affecting benefits because even in the Republican base there is a strong level of support for maintaining uh, current benefits in, in Medicare. This is one of the most interesting things that happened over the course of the campaign, how Republicans' views on free trade agreements uh, changed. Uh, and I think you have to say probably largely in response to, to some of the rhetoric from the president-elect. You see that you know the, the GOP was always known as a party of free trade. Well, not so much in this campaign. Uh, you know the data suggests otherwise. Now, you know I mean a couple of, a couple of uh, of caveats on this data. These are very much of the moment in the campaign at a time when when Trump was making it a central issue. It really resonated with with a lot of Republicans clearly. It's also a low salience issue. You know, some of this is, you know, trade is never something that people really talk about a lot. They don't really think about it. Trump raised the, the profile of this issue in a way and, and, and described it as a threat to jobs in a way very clearly that I think resonated with a lot of people. If you see Democrats as being sort of soft supporters of free trade, I suspect those numbers might change in the wake of the election. They were soft supporters as long as they had the White House. One wonders whether they still will be now that they're out of power. Uh, these are kind of complicated lines. Basically, you don't see much change in terms of economic views, uh, you know, in the wake of the election. But one thing really did change, and it's really amazing what you can see. Go to the next slide. The, the optimism, Republican optimism on the economy now that Trump's elected. I mean, we haven't seen anything like this. I, you know, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, this is certainly a lot of front, obvious frustration with what they were experiencing or saw or, or perceived during the Obama administration. But uh, on the one hand, you have to say Trump has high expectations. But, he, but, but uh, this is probably a pretty positive sign, I think, if I were a Trump fan. So uh, people are thinking that he's really going to change the economy, at least Republicans are. And then we can't have something at this, uh, this, this venue or this event without talking about the campaign. Let's just, and, and I'm sure you all want to talk about it and you have your own ideas, I just wanted to describe a few factors here. And, and these are kind of, there's no, there's no single factor behind Trump's victory and, and Clinton's loss in this campaign. But these are some of the elements that we found in our data, uh, certainly not this is not a comprehensive list. It does not include James Comey and does not include Vladimir Putin and all the other uh, potential uh, facts and factors of this campaign. But it, it, it goes back historically. People forget this, this polarization story. It almost guaranteed Trump a solid floor of support. I think that was crucial for him. The three-time uh, a charm uh, element of Clinton's candidacy. People overlooked that, especially in the latter stages of the campaign. Very hard, as we all know. George uh, Bush's father, the first, uh, the last candidate to win of the same party for the third time. Very hard to do, uh, especially uh, when when there's a lot of economic anxiety still in the country, even years after the recession, and especially among the white working class. Um, 
I thought I thought Eduardo's a Porter's piece in the New York Times the other day about overlaying, uh, you know, job growth in the states that Trump really did well in these swing states. There just hasn't been any. White working class people are feeling it. I mean, there's just no question about it. Racial resentments are part of the mix. I think that's that's true. It's hard to know how much. It's correlated with a lot of other things. The so-called uh, blue wall, which was sort of founded on the, the Democrats' demographic advantages, uh, didn't turn out to be quite enough in an electoral college system. And all of these lower factors, I think, are really crucial, including one that's not here, the fact that Trump was a well-known entertainment figure before he got into politics. I think that was a factor. Um, all of these are factors uh, in, in Trump's victory. And you know, this, to me, I think captures a lot of this, this <coughs> resentment. And we got a lot of questions on this finding from August. Uh, compared with 50 years ago, has li is life for people like you today better or worse? And, and, and the key phrase there is people like you. It's how you define yourself, maybe by economic status or race or whatever, or by party. Uh, but 81% of Trump supporters. Now is this nostalgia? Could be some. Could be a sense that the economy no longer works for them. But it was a powerful sentiment and it drove a lot of people to vote for Donald Trump. There's no question about that. So looking ahead, uh, you know, the, the both parties face challenges, obviously. Uh, the Democrats uh, <laughs> face an electoral map problem all of a sudden. They face a mobilization problem short of Obama. I mean, without Obama on the ballot, that's, that's where Clinton suffered. And, and, you know, the possibility, at least, that GOP can, can uh, in certain states, can uh, institute laws that may make it harder to vote. Now, the Republicans' challenges, uh, you know, maybe a friendly map in 2018, but also, uh, you know, we all know that two years into a new administration, uh, the possibility for, for seats, losing seats is there. Uh, the millennial problem hasn't gone away. Millennials voted for Clinton at lower rates than they voted for Obama. We'll probably see that the turnout was lower as well, but it's still somewhere on the order of 55, 57% of of millennials vote Democratic for the third election in a row, the strong majorities vote Democratic. And demographic change, while not enough to carry Clinton over the finish line, is still a challenge uh, for Republicans going forward because the, the country and the electorate is growing more diverse and will continue to do so. And I hope I didn't go too, too fast through that, but I wanted to uh, just touch on a lot of things, open it up for uh, questions and uh, have a conversation. Thanks. Okay. Questions, anyone? Uh, to get things kind of going. Sure. Help me, have you guys done anything in terms of looking at what moved the evangelicals towards Trump? And, and, and any of your polling, what was the sole thing that... that well, I, again, I think it's hard to, for any particular group of voters, it's hard to chalk it up to one thing. Certainly, part of the polarization pattern, we've seen evangelical strong Republicans for many elections in a row. And a real, uh, you know, this antipathy. That, you know, we, we asked people about midway through the campaign, 
on our panel, it was a very interesting experiment. We asked um, uh, Trump supporters and Clinton supporters why they were supporting their candidate and what was the biggest concern they had about their candidate. And, and you know, people on, on, in the online panel, they would type paragraphs of criticism about their own candidate and say, but they're better than the other guy. <laughs> you know, they would be this scathing criticism about Trump's temperament from Trump supporters, about Clinton's honesty from Clinton supporters. But the, the, the better than Trump, and evangelicals certainly, Trump being uh, uh, better able to nominate someone more acceptable to them on the court. And uh, and so they overlooked a lot. They overlooked a lot of his 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 personal foibles and flaws, and and voted. At, at, you know, at, at high rates, probably as high as in recent elections, maybe even a little bit higher. We'll find out. And uh, and I think it's you know it's they're just such an integral part of the Republican base. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering if you could tell, did Trump help or hurt GOP Senate candidates? It's hard for us to know. I think it's it a lot of it depends on state by state. You know, I think some some states he the the candidates. Uh, ran past uh, uh, Trump and other states they didn't. It's hard to know. Uh, I think that's something else we're going to be looking at. One of the things, you know, we right now we're relying on the exit polls, which are okay for some things because they're the same poll being asked over time. So whatever flaws they do have, you can at least compare election to election. They're not very good for composition and things like that and comparing things like that. We'll, have, we'll get a census report and some other data over the next year. We'll be able to know, answer questions like that better, especially on a state level. Yeah. I had a question about, um, you were talking about the different support for various issues like trade, yeah. healthcare, something like that. Have you done like a long-term analysis of how much that fluctuates based on who's in power and the acceptability of certain, you know, free trade is it more acceptable when yeah, I think there's a re what we call regime effect on something. Certainly, uh, some, take something like government regulation of business. Would Republicans, you know, Republicans are probably consistently a little less supportive of that as kind of a values or principle than Democrats. Their support might go up now that the person who's doing the regulating or the party that's doing the regulating is their own. Uh, so you do see that regime effect. And we, we try to track these values over time. Candidates matter, too. I mean, look, you know, the, the Trump statement on trade, I mean, that's as powerful an effect as we've seen on an issue. I mean, it really is. It really resonated among Republican voters throughout this campaign, this, this trade. And it was such a shock in a way because we all know that Republicans traditionally are supportive of, of free trade, and have been in the past. And, but I think that underneath the surface, there was something there. Less educated people, there's resistance to trade in both parties now. You saw it with the Sanders campaign among Democrats. I think the case, one of the things we've seen on trade in this campaign is it, it and, and for a while now, is you really don't have anybody in a prominent political leadership role making the case for free trade. I mean, Clinton sort of did, but then walked away from TPP, so she wasn't really a staunch advocate there, and uh, and then obviously with Trump. So so there really wasn't much, and then Sanders, of course, attacking Clinton from the other side. So you really didn't have much of a case being made generally for free trade in this campaign. Mark? Yeah, um, question for you. To my recollection, this is at least the second election, maybe more, that polling has got a black eye. 
Uh, uh, <laughs> man, Charlie Cook himself said we got it wrong. That was his his his. Uh, well, uh, he, he should speak for himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what? My question is: is what? What do we what needs to be changed the way we do? Polling? Yeah. No, what, what's, it's, what? It's a good question. He, he's right. Look, perception is reality, yeah. and the perception is that the polls got it wrong, media got it wrong. <laughs> The, the truth is, it's more nuanced than that. It always is. It's always more complicated. National polls were pretty much right. We did not do an election uh, popular vote projection the way we do typically do. We did not do that this year. We did our polling on issues, but we didn't do a basically a prediction. I mean, a couple of things happened. The, the, the national polls were generally okay. They weren't bad. It was really the state polls. And what you had was a, a, a situation where these state polls and national polls were used to model the election more than we've ever seen. In other words, the New York Times, uh, 538, all had their predictors, all, had, all gave you a percentage, a single percentage of the likelihood of the outcome. And, and a lot of that was based on, as we found later, faulty state polls, so it magnified the error, in effect. Now, were some of the state polls wrong? Yeah, they were. And the most worrisome thing is that they might all be wrong in a certain direction in the sense that the states where, that were most out of, out of line were states like Wisconsin where you have this high share of white non-college voters. And so the question arises, are polls systematically missing these voters? That's an examination I think we're all doing. We're, we're certainly leading that effort at my place. Is, is there a systematic under-representation under of, of these people in polls? Maybe they're reluctant to, to participate for whatever reason. But that was a factor as well. But I also think the idea of the false precision uh, of putting a percentage uh, probability on the outcome was kind of a mistake because it just magnified the errors at the end. Is there any sense of actually this non-working, I mean, white, white non-college line? Not that we've seen. I mean, we've done some testing on that because we have an online panel, and, and there certainly was no evidence of that in the primaries. In primary polls, even in the states, are pretty good. Um, and they didn't undercount Trump's support, which, of course, he, especially in the primaries, was doing really well with that. So, but, but we do an online panel and we do telephone polls, and the results are fairly similar, which would, would lead you to believe, well... Well, either something yeah. was wrong, either they voted right. differently than they said they were going to vote, more of them came out than you thought were going to come or out. Or they were missed by the polls, and that's, that's the one, missed by the sample. Yeah, or they lied. What is missed by the polls? I mean, they weren't in the sample. They, they, yeah. they weren't, they, we couldn't reach them. It's, well, basically, you thought they were not going to come out, and they came out. Well, well, I mean, they, they weren't even represented. So if you have a Clinton poll plus five in Wisconsin, you're not you're not getting a certain, probably, you know, significant portion of that electorate. That's not even part of that poll. So it looks a little different than it should. You know, it's it's. Uh, I, I I don't think I think we can look we can look at the shy Trump. We saw the shy Brexit and all that. It's something we're still analyzing. I don't think there's been much evidence to date of people lying. Are most are sensitive to this? I mean, they oh, yeah. admit people yeah. are lying to them? Yeah. No, well, look, it's... it's <laughs> I'm asking. No, no, I think these are, all, these are all good questions and relevant questions and ones we're studying. Presumably, 
if you're doing it online and you're not telling a live interviewer who you're, who you're uh, supporting and your answers are confidential, you should feel free to express support for, for your candidate. You know. yeah. I mean, the other thing we did, we asked me. I bet you'd be more surprised. The more politically incorrect it was to be for Trump, the more lying there will be. Yes, I, you know, it's possible. It's certainly possible. <coughs> and it's one of the questions we'll be addressing. We asked the Trump supporters, now again, this is based on Trump supporters, uh, so we might be missing some, but, but we said, well, are you reluctant? And this we asked this of Clinton as well. Uh, how do you talk about your support, either with your family, friends, workplace, church? Uh, do you like basically broadcast it? You tell everybody you know, or do you talk about it when it comes up and say, "Oh, I support X or Y"? Or are you reluctant to talk about it? And, and only seven percent of Trump supporters and seven percent of Clinton supporters said that they were reluctant. Now, you know, again, that's a low number. It is a low number, and and. Part of it could be that with polarized, more polarized environments now, yeah. people are around their people, like-minded people more, and so they're more freer to express their views than maybe 30 or 40 years ago when you had more politically mixed environments. When you survey people these days, what's your rate of refusal to answer any survey questions? I read something the other day, maybe it was wrong or misprint, but it certainly blew me away that only about 10% of That's people right. reached or actually agreed to That's answer right. questions. The response rate is about 10%. Wow. And, and uh, that's why we're doing all sorts of experimentation going forward. What are you going to do with that? Okay, well, you can do an online panel. That has its own problems. We, we worry a little bit about the representativeness of that. You know, what, what we worry about there is that you're not getting kind of, you, you worry about their level of political engagement and the people on the panel might be more politically engaged than the average person in the public. And so that, that's a problem. But that's probably the way to go in the future simply because the telephone itself is changing as an instrument society and using it for polls is becoming increasingly impractical and expensive, you know. And so, so the panel idea has merit. So we saw the, um, the level of support, or I guess confidence, in the Trump administration to be able to bring the economy up, that 75% is quite unprecedented. And he's going to go into office in January with several wins, including the carrier uh, outsourcing deal and, and several others. How long do you think that he'll be able to ride that before the reality sets in about how slow Congress moves? And what authorities the president actually has to well, control? Well, it's, it's results matter. I mean, that's the thing. With any president, he, he's no different than any other president. Results matter. You know, performance matters. But, you know, it's what we were saying before before the, the started. I mean, you know, he has this this kind of base that seems very loyal and, and, and may help him ride through some, some bad times. Now, he's not going to reach it. He's not going to expand that base. You can see from these numbers that it's going to be very challenging for him to expand that base. He could if you know the economy. If you're looking at a three plus percent growth rate in in 2017, sure. Uh, but uh, you know that's that seems a little harder. But that base is pretty solidly behind him. I think you know you've seen it through thick and thin. Yeah. Faith in government probably at its lowest point in a long time. Right. Does that correlate with Trump's rise? And and to the extent that the Trump supporter 
gets disillusioned as expectations. Yeah, fall. that's that's right. Uh, they will have a greater number of people who have less faith. It's hard to get below awareness. Where do you go next? Yeah, no, that's that's the question. I mean, does does he actually raise? Uh, Trust in government. I mean, we've the, the one question that the, the polling question that goes back to one, one of the oldest polling questions go back to 1958. How often can you trust the government of Washington to do the right thing? Always or most of the time, or almost never. The, the always or most of the time for the past 10 years has been around 20 to 25 percent. Fell, it fell with Watergate and Vietnam and some of the problems of the 70s. And you know, except for various times, Reagan, it, it, it came up with a nice economy, Clinton a little bit, but then you had impeachment. So it's been low for quite a long time. And, and so this predates Trump, this sort of cynicism about government. Question, what, what happens now is, is, is a really good one because, you know, both sides now are kind of distrusting government. It's not necessarily that partisan an issue. It's, it's, it's a real problem. Uh, I think for Congress and the administration and rebuilding this trust. Now that said, a healthy economy cures a lot of ills, and, and uh, you know if, if this economy really does take off, I think you'll you'll see a little more faith in government. John Timmons, did you do any uh, polling on when people decided? Well, we were talking about that. I mean, the exit poll uh, asks the question of of uh, people: Did you decide? you know, around the time of the conventions or earlier, or before this year. But the key measure is that we decided in the last week. And in those key swing states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, Ohio, you, you had about 10 to 15 percent saying in the exit polls that they decided in the last week. And they went, they went very strong for Trump. Now, we were talking about it. And, you know, anybody, who, anybody here who's been involved in, in political campaigns knows that Usually the late deciders decide against uh, the, essentially the incumbent, um, but Comey may have been a factor. The FBI, the FBI report may have been a factor. It's hard to know. Again, this is one of those things where picking out one factor is really hard. But no question that the late deciders went to Trump. In pretty big numbers too, especially in Wisconsin. Darian, did you look at the feelings on the executive branch? I, I think it'd be interesting to see that. Uh, for the last eight years, Republicans have really criticized Obama about right. the expansion of the executive branch. But Trump ran on this kind of take action, very efficient and effective role that he see and he's branded himself as a kind of as a CEO type. Right. And and with his base, there's that energy around you know tangible successes very quickly. Do you did you look at how the electorate feels about potentially? Uh, the expanded role of the executive as long as it's getting things done. Well, I think you'll see it on a partisan basis. Certainly, we haven't answered about Trump, but Obama, you know, expanded presidential power. If it's being used by Obama, positive for Democrats, but negative for Republicans. I, I think one of the anomalies of, of what we're seeing in the current polling is just how popular Obama is. All this. I mean, yeah, it's not all of a sudden. He's actually been, been getting more popular over the past year. And I think part of it is that you have such an ugly campaign Obama looks pretty good by comparison, and and so our most this poll is the most recent poll. Fifty-eight percent. He's up. He's up close to Clinton territory as he was leaving office. But the most interesting fact about that was millennials. Millennials, seventy-seven percent approving of Obama, uh, and that's up eleven points since October. 
And, and so I think there's a little Obama nostalgia going on here too among, among young people who really did support him through through two elections. And so, um, so it, it, it's interesting as he leaves office. It, it was very interesting. You should look at it on our website because the, the mixed views of Obama. Very popular personally, high favorability rating. Mixed views of accomplishments. Uh, not so positive about whether he really made progress on the issues facing the country. So it's kind of a complicated picture of views of Obama as he's leaving. Megan. Um, just going back to the, the trade uh, yeah. polling, I'd just be curious, was, is there, are there any polls out there that differentiate between multilateral trade deals and right. bilateral or a smaller? Like no, it, it's, a, it's, a low, it's a low information environment on trade. I think now it's not because of Trump has sort of raised his profile, so now we can talk about that. I think that's a great question because you don't know the degree to which some of this Brexit phenomenon of multilateralism is driving opposition to trade. Would Republican voters, I imagine they would, uh, support a Trump-negotiated trade deal with the UK? Say, I suspect they would. It's not trade. It's not trade generally. It's this idea of multilateralism and the idea that the U.S. gives up more in these multilateral deals than it gets. And so I think you could see these numbers move under, under different circumstances. And that's on both sides, both Republicans and Democrats. Right, you're right. Well, I mean, again, accounting for regime effect, I can't imagine Democrats will be too wild about many of the trade deals uh, that Trump would negotiate, but you never know. I mean, you know, that I suspect Democratic support for trade is generally going to fall, I think. You know, the party is the party's moving to the left, and that's one of the issues that they're probably going to Greg? But do you get a feel for how um, people are feeling about the uh, president-elect's tendency to reach out directly to and confront specific companies? No, we haven't tested that. It's, it's all part of his personal style. It, 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 you know, there's he has a lot of negatives. He's lived with those through the campaign. Again, people don't want him to tweet or go off the cuff as much as he had, 82% said he needs to be more cautious. Uh, you know, the, public, the public's view of all this is pretty clear. Um, and in terms of you know, targeting specific com companies or calling them out, I imagine it's of the same kind of thing, you know, but, uh, you know, again, the bottom line is the bottom line. If, if his performance is, is deemed good, I think people will, will uh, accept a lot or tolerate a lot. Tim. Uh, related to John's question yeah. uh, about timing of when yeah. people decided, yeah. um, how does an exit polling-centric yeah. world uh, deal with <coughs> early voting? Well, that was one of the big errors. I think that, uh, you, you know, it's, it all gets calculated and it all gets analyzed. And there are some specialists that we trust uh, who, who analyze the early polling. I think they were, they were kind of a false read in some states, especially Florida, because it looked like the early vote. And it, it was true that the early vote uh, was going for Clinton from, from based on geographic and look at ge geography and demographics. Uh, turns out a lot of people still vote on election day. <laughs> That's very good for Donald Trump. <laughs> In Nevada, on the other hand, uh, it, it did work out for Clinton. The early vote, especially among Hispanics, was very strong for Clinton. Ended up she won Hispanics, won the state. Jim. Um, with regard to, say, late breakers in Wisconsin yeah. or white, my fellow white, non-college educated yeah. people from Wisconsin. Do you have any sense that some of those folks are first-time voters, like in a state like Wisconsin? That's what we want to know. Same-day registration. Yeah. yeah. People really, you know, they may never have been measured. They weren't registered voters. They right. Were likely voters. 
That's what we want to know. We, 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 that's, uh, you know, all yet. this is good. We don't know yet. All, we're going to crunch. We're going to crunch a lot of data. One of the things we tools we have now is the actual voting records that campaigns use, and we, we're getting more access to it. It's costly, but you know, it's kind of we can sort of do it and see exactly, you know, who are these these people who didn't vote in 2012 and 2014, who voted in 2016, what do they look like? You won't be able to tell who they voted for, but you could probably infer that from other data. But, you, but you have a sense that there were a significant number? I think it's possible. I think it's possible in some of the states, especially <coughs> Wisconsin. I think you may have, have gotten new voters. But then nothing from exit polls that show No, it's, it's hard. Con the exit polls are pretty bad for composition in terms okay. of you know the composition. They're, they're okay for showing you how groups voted, the preference, and preference over time, they're not so good in terms of the, the makeup of the electorate. You know. Please. Um, I'm going to shift a slight bit. Yeah. Um, so some of these numbers I don't think are surprising due to yeah. the polarization of politics. And a lot of questions we're asking is, where did Dems lose Dem votes? Right. Republicans gave. My question is, what happened to independence? I haven't seen a lot on independence, not maybe the last one, but there used to be a poll to get that independent vote. That used to be a huge part of the election, and in turn, that meant moderate policies and kind of you know shifting so it's not so left or right. right. Have we just lost the moderacy? Have we lost the independence? Are there no well, we, we don't study independence as closely as we used to because what we've discovered is that a lot of these independents are really closet partisans now. Um, I mean, they call themselves independents. You know, it's, it's interesting the groups that call themselves independents. You, you see a lot of Republican-leaning independents. They may not be happy with the, with the brand they you know, but they still are pretty Republican. Millennials, pretty Democratic group. 50% call themselves independents, the highest share of any generation. They're pretty liberal, they're pretty Democratic. In general, independents, you know, 70, 80 percent of them, line up pretty closely to one party or the other, and that that means they're not so moderate. The middle, I mean, we've always struggled in trying to define the middle in American politics. I mean, what defines the middle these days, I think, is sort of a lack of engagement in politics. I mean, the true independents, the 10 to 20 percent of the people who really have no partisan leaning one one way or the other. They're the ones who are mo least likely to vote. They're the ones who are least li engaged in politics. And so they, from a campaign perspective, they're, they're something of a non-factor. They keep themselves to the side. Stephen Jackson. Um, there's a lot of discussion of the proper role of news media currently. Right. Is there discussion among pollsters of the proper role of polls engaging in that national polling was basically correct, but it didn't matter because right. are up 2% and how it works. Um, but those drive TV numbers, they drive clicks. Right. But what, how are pollsters who want to get accurate information but you're polling something that's not real or doesn't matter? Right, right. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's, it matters what you want to do with it, what, what, you, what you see polling or the utility of polling. We changed our approach this year. I mean, we, we, did, we, we feel like the horse race is overdone, and, and and I feel like there's a value in public opinion research that goes beyond the horse race. So we try to do more. We try to do more issues. We try to get at the factors of how people were feeling. You saw that 50-year question. 
Um, we, uh, and so I do think there's an overemphasis on the horse race. Whether that's bad or good for democracy, it's hard to tell. Um, you know, what we'd like to do, I, there, there is a question about the poll's impact and the media coverage impact in one way on, on the election. I, probably lots of questions, but one we're particularly interested in. <coughs> this is the first election in a long time where the voters got it. You know, all, all campaigns, 60 plus percent of voters were saying Clinton's going to win. And uh, voters are usually right. You know, they receive their information from the media and the, and the polls and things like that, so they're, they're responsive to that. But you wonder if there wasn't a small share of Clinton supporters who were complacent, and if complacency was a factor in the vote. And if that's the case, that would be you know, perhaps attributable to some of the positive media coverage and to some of these models saying that she has an 85% chance or a 98% chance of winning. If you're, if you're a kind of marginal voter, you need to stay home because you think, quote, she's got it, you know, as some commentators, especially liberal commentators. So, so in that sense, the media may have, I mean, there are a million ways the media could have impacted this election, positive negative for Trump, positive negative for Clinton, but that's one that I think you can, Look, look at data and say, maybe there was an effect. Anyone else? Lose a car. Do you? I'm going to give you the last question yeah, if you have one. You woke him up. <laughs> 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 I was actually just thinking of the Electoral College. Right. And really, I mean, Democrats especially would argue she did win. She did win. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, so what's, I mean, what's your favorite sports metaphor? I think uh, Kellyanne Conway says it's, uh, you know, you have more hits and then we only count runs. Or, right. you know, <laughs> gain more yards, we got more points. I, you know, whatever metaphor. Really, analysis would be very different. Yeah, no, no, and, and Trump's right. I mean, one of the, one of, Trump has said, in terms of this electoral college question, I mean, obviously Democrats are saying it means he doesn't have the same kind of mandate as prior presidents. Uh, like that. What Trump has said, wait a minute, I would have campaigned differently if the electoral college system was in place. He's right, he would have. He would have spent more time in Texas yeah. uh, ramping up the vote there or in, in the South or in you know, red states. He would have campaigned completely differently. Clinton would have campaigned. It would have been a different campaign altogether. I mean, it's probably not going to change. <laughs> so it's the system. And uh, both parties have had to learn to adapt to it. I mean, right now, the conventional wisdom is it favors Republicans, but, uh, you know, who knows going forward? I mean, every, everything changes in politics. It's a 